0: Good to stand this behind this pulpit once again. You know, um, last Sunday was uh, somewhat of an anniversary for me, um, because it was 24 years ago last Sunday, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, that I first stood on this platform and and uh, preached, and uh, been doing it once in a while ever since. And uh, so, uh, I just thought that was something that came to my mind, and thought some of you old timers might remember that and be interested in that. I heard about a little boy who uh, who was coming out of church one day, and he said to his mom and dad, uh, you know what? I've decided I'd like to be a pastor. And they said, really? Uh, that's wonderful. Uh, what caused you to think that? And he said, well, I know I'm going to have to go to church on Sunday, and I figured it would be better, more fun to stand up and holler than to, than to sit and listen. <laughs> so I'm going to stand up and yell here for a little bit. <laughs> and I urge you to sit and listen. This being the first Sunday of Advent, uh, Pastor Jim has asked that uh, I would lead off. And uh, next Sunday, Pastor Lucas is going to uh, pick it up. And uh, Pastor Jim will finish up for the remainder of the time up until Christmas. And uh, it's Christmas according to Isaiah. And so each of these four Sundays will uh, feature a message from the, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. So today we're looking at Isaiah chapter 40. And if you have the sermon notes that are printed in the... Uh, in the bulletin, you can follow along. Uh, you'll notice that my sermon notes are a lot more detailed than Pastor Jim's. And uh, that's just the way we do. And I, I give you a few little places to fill in the blanks, you know. It's sort of like giving the crayons to the children in the restaurant and they can kind of <laughs> color on the, uh, on the placemat. Um, are we getting a lot of feedback there? Is that better? Okay, okay. And uh, so uh, it gives you some things to... Help, hopefully, help to maintain your attention. Now, I thought since it's the first Sunday of Advent, it would good, be good to um, define Advent. Um, Advent, as already has been mentioned, speaks of arrival, speaks of coming. Uh, this is my definition of the first Advent. It is, it's the arrival on the earthly scene of the Messiah, Son of David, expected. To be Israel's um, king forever and that would be in fulfillment of the, the what we speak of as the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 where David is promised that he will have a king who will reign sit on the throne of Israel forever and so that's the first advent now there's also a second advent and uh I would define that in this way. The second advent is the arrival on the earthless scene of the Messiah, son of David, to bring to completion God's eternal plan. Because in his first advent, contrary to the expectation of a lot of the Old Testament, you know, people that were rooted in the Old Testament, he did not complete all that he had come to do, um, but he, he achieved that death and resurrection and ascension with the promise that he would come again, that there would be a second advent. And in the second advent, he would bring to pass all of the the completion of of the answering of all of the promises that had been made of the Messiah. So uh, the big idea today, and you have it printed there before you, is that before the earthly arrival of Messiah, preparations were underway for one to go before him announcing his arrival, urging obedient response to him. And then I've added an obedient response to him continues to be urged upon people to this day in anticipation of his second advent. So it's difficult for us to talk about the first advent without some understanding of the second advent. So that first point is the promise of Messiah's forerunner. And we see it here in Isaiah chapter 40. It's the first five verses of Isaiah uh, chapter 40 that we're going to look at. And the, first, the first couple of verses are a, a proclamation. Listen to this now. Isaiah the prophet. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, this is obviously a, a predictive prophecy. We know that because when we look at the picture and we read the scriptures, we know that in Isaiah's day, it was not true that Israel's warfare was ended. It was not true that her iniquity had received the pardon that that is referred to here. That was a promise for the future. But the people were to be comforted by the understanding that the day was going to come when that would be fulfilled. I mean, stop and think about those of you that know your Bible history a little bit. You know that the Babylonian captivity was still ahead of them. And there were 70 years of of judgment that God was... Bringing to, had promised to bring to Israel because of her sinful ways. So to say that uh, her iniquity is pardoned, no, there, she still had, the nation Israel still had some, of Judah had some debts to pay, so to speak, because of her sinful ways. But the promise that comes and brings such comfort is that one day they will have the comfort of knowing the end of war and the end of iniquity. And, and it says there that, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, on the first reading of that, at least for me, there's an inclination to say, well, the Lord is going to punish them double for their sins? But no, no, it's not punishment. It's the promise of forgiveness. It's the promise that God, by his grace, is going to abundantly pardon her. Double of God's resources. You know, our capacity for sin is great, but God's capacity for forgiveness is infinitely greater. And for us, there's a lesson there. There's a reminder here. And we should be reminded of the generosity of God, how lavish is his forgiveness, because how serious has been our sin. And I think we need to, I don't know, we get pretty casual sometimes. I speak for myself. I, you know, take, take it just for granted that, that God has forgiven me. But I think of some of the statements, I think of some of the New Testament statements in Ephesians 2.7. Uh, Paul speaks of the surpassing riches of his grace. And a little further on, he speaks of the unfathomable riches of Christ. In Ephesians 3.20 yeah, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. His God is infinitely generous. And in his forgiveness he gives us double of what we need. I, I believe that's what is there and that statement should be a reminder to us of the greatness of the forgiveness of God. I, uh, the name Paul Little Will ring a bell with some of you. He, in a bygone day was uh, was a professor at uh, our seminary in Deerfield, and um, he uh, yeah I say a bygone day, but there was a bygone day earlier than that. He was not a sem- he was not a, uh, a professor there yet when I was at that seminary, but uh, but the day came when Paul Little came to serve there, and I remember it was in uh, 1973 when I attended a uh, Meeting of the National Ministerial Association in Austin, Texas, and Paul Little was the speaker that day, or one of the speakers, and I remember him telling this story. And and you know the story is old because people were riding on a train. People don't ride on trains as much now as they used to. But anyway, this man gets on the train in Chicago, and the train is headed west out of Chicago. And if you know Illinois, uh, you know, there's not any... uh, really awesome scenery as you go across those open plains there. But this man is sitting, there's a man sitting by the window and the guy comes in, sits beside him and he notices the man by the window is looking out the window and he's saying, wow, it's just to himself. Oh, look at that. Oh, wow. And he's going on and on like that. And this man said he couldn't resist saying, pardon me, sir. He says, what are you what are you seeing that's causing you to you know be so amazed and and the man said this oh the man said everything you see i am returning home from the hospital where i had an operation that restored my sight after 24 years of blindness everything was awesome to him and i remember dr little going on and saying you know it ought to be that way with us as we look at the riches of God's dealing with us, and we should stand in awe. You know, out here, we take for granted the mountains and the and the ocean and the all the stuff that is around us. And not aren't the uh, evergreens beautiful with the snow on them and everything? I mean, all a part of God's creation. We look at his creation, we should stand in awe of it. We look at what he has done, has extended to us in his grace and his forgiveness and, and his generosity. And we should say, wow. And Dr. Little said, let's pray that God would restore the wow to our lives. And I, I need that. And I wouldn't be surprised that maybe some of you need that as well. Well, okay, that's, there's this promise of a of a messiah's forerunner first the proclamation and then in verses 3 to 5 we see this and 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 here we have a it's really a command that's given a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god every valley should be lifted up and and Isaiah with his uh, use of figurative language. You pick every every valley shall be lifted up, every hill and a mountain shall be made low. The oven, uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah is saying, uh, make straight. This, this voice needs to proclaim, make straight a path for the Lord. And the low places to be rise, raised and the high places to be leveled out and everything made smooth and plain for the arrival of the Messiah. One of the commentators, um, Franz uh, Delitzsch, says, the crier, the one who cries out in this way, is like the outrider of a king who takes care that the way by which the king is to go shall be put in good condition. And I think in that culture, they were acquainted with the situation where the king is coming. And so those go ahead of the way of him and prepare the way and smooth the road for the arrival of the king. And that's the imagery that we have here that uh, this declaration is to be made. Now, to demonstrate that this command refers to preparing the way for Messiah's first advent, we'll look at some New Testament quotations that uh, that find, that quote this text. Some places in the New Testament where this particular text is quoted. And it's quoted frequently. It's quoted by all four of the gospel writers and uh, we'll look at some of those. In Luke chapter 1, if you'll stop and think, part of the Christmas story is the fact, and this is where Luke begins his story, he talks about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, Elizabeth was Mary's relative, and they were up in years beyond the days of bearing children, and the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, and he says, you're going to be the father of a son. And in the context, you know, it's all of this, and, and Zechariah says, how shall this be, and so on. And, and Zechariah is struck, he is made mute. And the angel said, you won't speak again until after the child has been born. And that's what happened. So for nine months and whatever it takes, uh, Zechariah is silent. The baby is born and he is, the name, he is to be named, and Elizabeth says he's to be named John. That's what the angel had said, name him John. And they said, well, that's a strange name for your family. And then, Zechariah asks for a pad, and he writes down, yes, his name will be John. And all of this is preceding this verse in Luke chapter 1. And his mouth, his tongue is loosed, and he speaks. And he has this great statement that goes on for several verses there in Luke chapter 1. But in in what's recorded in verse 76, here's Zechariah speaking to this, this infant baby, this, this John. And he says, and you, child... Will be called the prophet of the most high for you will be, go before the lord to prepare his ways and so zechariah is acquainted with this promise in isaiah 40 that there's to be one who's to be the forerunner of the messiah to to prepare the way for him and he says and you my child are the one and by the way the last two verses of the old testament the last two verses in the book of malachi are an echo of this same idea that a prophet, Elijah, in the spirit of Elijah, will come and and prepare the way for the Lord. So Zechariah, I'm sure, with these two passages in mind, addresses his infant son. So here's a, here's a verification that that Isaiah 40 passage relates to the one who's going to come as the forerunner of the Messiah. And of course, that baby came to be known as John the Baptist, or maybe more correctly, John, the baptizer, because, uh, you know, um, well, he wasn't part of that denomination. He was, uh, he was the baptizer, the one who had come to baptize. And then if we go on to the next, uh, see, these are the, this is the New Testament understanding of the promised forerunner, for those of you that are filling in the blanks there. So we have the words of Zechariah, we have the words of luke himself now in luke chapter 3 and in verses 3 to 6 we we have luke now the writer of that gospel saying and he came that is john the baptizer came into all the district around the jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of isaiah the prophet the voice of one crying in the wilderness See, I'm reading, the words I have here are a little different than those because that's the the, um, uh, uh, English, the ERV, and uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, so uh, if I'm not reading from up there, these words are a little different. But anyway, in verse 4, as it is written... In the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. A, a full quotation from Isaiah 40. We won't turn to the passages in uh, in, uh Matthew and Mark but both Matthew and Mark in the references that you have in your notes there say the same thing. This is the fullest expression of that but each of them quote Isaiah 40 to recognize that John the Baptist is the one who is the fulfiller of that Isaiah 40 promise. Now, I go to the next passage in John chapter 1 and here we have John the Baptist, John the baptizer, himself speaking. And, uh, and we have, the, the situation is that uh, the people have come to John and they, and they say, who are you? And the previous couple of verses give us a little more of that, but now they said to him, who are you? They're asking John. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, John himself said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So, John himself recognizes that, and he declares himself to be the fulfiller of that prophecy by the grace of God. Um, Then, um, well, let's see. I I just want us to notice that even in this same passage in John chapter 1, just a few verses later, it's It's John who points to Jesus who is coming. It's the next day after he has said this. It says, again, the next day John was standing and two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked, and he said, behold the Lamb of God. And short time later, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. So John is recognizing his position as the forerunner of the Messiah. You know, I learned through uh, a friend who did a little research for me that um, there is today, still today, a sect in the East that follow John the Baptist and think of Jesus as a false prophet. They are called the, uh, make sure I get it right, the Mandeans. And the information I have is there are about uh, 60,000 people in this sect in the Middle East that still today recognize John as their prophet and Jesus is, is sort of an imposter. So, you know, there were those who were following John and wanted to continue to follow John and there have been across the years. I did not realize until that was pointed out to me that there was still that John the Baptist sect. They're Gnostics and we could go into detail, but I, I just, it was interesting to, um, to notice that. Jesus himself, and we'll go to Luke seven now. Luke chapter seven. Jesus himself reminds us, and he and he also quotes this passage. See, I'm just I'm going to the passages in the New Testament where this Isaiah 40 passage is quoted, and want us to see that, that John the baptizer is the fil- fulfiller of all that. When the pe- the setting is John. By this time in Luke chapter seven, John is in prison. And John sends two of his disciples to Jesus with the question, "Are you the one who is coming, or do we look for someone else?" And those two disciples come, and Jesus uh, says to them, "Well, uh, go back to John and tell him what you see. Uh, tell him that you have seen and heard this: the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers lepers are cleansed." The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Go back and tell John this. Now, there's different theories on this. I uh, am, am inclined to feel this. You know, why did John send his disciples to ask this question? Didn't John know? I think John did know. I think John was convinced of who Jesus was. But he wanted his disciples, these men that are following him, to understand that Jesus is the one that is the, the one for whom John has been preparing the way. And so Jesus says, tell John everything that you see. But the, the point of it is that these disciples of John recognize through understanding what Jesus is doing, he is the one to be followed and not John the Baptist. John is just the forerunner. So in that context, we have... We have Jesus saying, these are the words of Jesus, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I want to pause on that phrase just for a minute. Jesus doesn't say, The greatest person who ever lived is John. No, but he says there is none greater. He's among the greatest of those born of women. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How? Well, I think Jesus is indicating that we have a fuller understanding of the truth than even John the Baptist did. The record goes on to show how Jesus died in our place for sin, And he rose again and he was ascended into heaven and he promises to come again. And all of that is subsequent to the understanding that John has. John knows that Jesus is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the Messiah. But Jesus goes on and say, now you who enter the kingdom of God, you are greater than he in that you have a greater understanding, a greater revelation of God's truth. You and I stand in a much superior place to John the Baptist because we have the fuller understanding of the truth of God. And you and I are so blessed. You know, we need to have the wow restored to our lives. So we understand that. So the response to the forerunner's declaration, as we see in point three there, is this, that um, verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too. They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. These people who had responded to John's message and declare God just in what he's provided as John the Baptist has come preparing the way for Jesus, and and they say, yes, they are the acceptors of the truth. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers, that is the guys that understood the law, the lawyers, uh, religious lawyers, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so when they got exposed to the ministry of John the Baptist, they did not respond. There were acceptors, the people, uh, many of the common people, even the tax collectors, and the tax collectors are on on the low end of the social scale because, you know, they were judged by the Jews to kind of be traitors. They were were collecting taxes for the Roman government. There were a lot of abuses there. So these tax collectors are not well thought of. And so uh, even they responded. They became the acceptors of the message of John and beyond that to the message of Jesus. And yet there were those others, the religious authorities, who rejected God's purpose for themselves, and rejected the message that God had for them. Well, let me just say, isn't it not the same today? Uh, There are acceptors and rejectors of the one for, for whom the pathway had been prepared, Jesus himself. There were then, there are now. He's the one who in his first advent was born of a virgin, lived in perfection and power, died as a sacrifice for our sins, arose to demonstrate his victory over death, and he has promised a second advent in which he will take believers to be with him forever. To you rejecters, if there are such among us and in a, in a group this size, I can't help but believe there are probably some who have never given themselves over to this truth, who have never in an act of personal faith committed themselves to Jesus Christ to accept all the benefits that he, he ga- came to bring. To, and if that's you, to you rejectors of this truth, I say, set aside your disbelief and the pride that holds you back. Reach out in humble repentance and faith to receive the salvation he has purchased for you. Do it now. Don't delay. To you receptors, I should say to us receptors, because I count myself in that number, to us receptors of this saving gospel, I say this, live in faithful obedience to him. Having accepted him in his first advent, eagerly anticipate his second advent. Putting aside for now all of discussion of uh, controversial issues, uh, in this thing that we call eschatology, the theology of future things, putting aside uh, all that uh, that you know includes such terms as rapture and premillennial or post-millennial or mid or uh, or amillennial or pre-tribulation or post-tribulation or or uh, I was going to say pan-tribulation. That's not a legitimate view. Uh, mid-tribulation, um, you know, the intermediate state, soul sleep. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. There is a time and a place for the discussion of all this, but that time is not now. But in the midst of all of that discussion, one undeniable fact stands out, and that is the fact that there will be a second advent. Jesus is coming again. And regardless of the differences of opinion that we might have on all of the things that surround that, Jesus is coming again. Again, and we acceptors should eagerly anticipate that day. And you rejectors should repent and believe. Otherwise, you must dread that day. Tomorrow's the first day of December, a month filled with reminders of the first advent. There will be times when we acceptors can bear witness to the reason for the season. But let's not forget this. We can be forerunners um, uh, to our generation. Modern day John the Baptists, if you will. Making a smooth pathway for Jesus the Messiah in preparation for his second advent. If, If he should come today, and find my hands so full of future plans, however fair, in which my Savior has no share, what would he say? If he should come today and find that I had not told one soul about my heavenly friend, whose blessings all my way attend, what would he say? If he should come today, would I be glad, quite glad, remembering he had died for all but none through me had heard his call? What would he say? If he should come today and find my love so cold, my faith so very weak and dim, I had not even looked for him, what would he say? Well, these are the words of Jesus recorded in the 12th chapter of Luke. Blessed are those servants whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes you too be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect i'd like us to pray together our father we come to you and we thank you for your great promises we thank you that you are a god who keeps your promises And you kept the promise of the coming of the Messiah as predicted in Isaiah 40 in the first advent of our Savior. But not all of those promises are fulfilled yet because you have promised a second advent. You have promised to come again. I pray, Father, that any rejecters of this message of the gospel will come under the conviction, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And you would help any such in this room today to recognize their need of a Savior because they are sinners in need of your grace. And I pray that any rejectors here today will become acceptors, responders in faith to the message of the gospel. And for those of us, the acceptors, those of us who have responded in obedience, may our obedience continue in lives that are lived consistently under the guidance of your spirit to fulfill the purposes that you have for us. And actively sharing with those around us The truth of the gospel and in this way be making the way plain, making the way clear for the one, our Messiah, our Savior who is going to come once again. So I pray you'll take the words these words that have been shared this morning and use them to instruct us and to convict us and to challenge us to respond to you in obedience regardless of where we might be in our own particular lives. And may this Advent season be for us a great time of leading us to stand in awe at the marvelous grace that you've extended to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.